0: My name is Dina travis and I'm the Curator of Queer Thinking for Mardi Gras 2016. So I really thank you for joining this important discussion. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. We're absolutely thrilled to be having this discussion as part of queer thinking, and I am very pleased that this panel is being presented today by Acon. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with ACOM's work, I encourage you to look at what they are doing. They're doing incredible work in the LGBTQI space, and whether it's services or research or advocacy, it's pretty far-reaching and it does have an impact on a lot of people. So it's just a great fit to have them as part of this. Before I pass on to our moderator, a bit of very quick housekeeping. This panel will run for an hour, and then afterwards at 5.30, we encourage you to come and join us in the foyer. The bar will be open, and we can continue those conversations afterwards. I will now hand over. Very pleased that ACON's Kai Noonan will be moderating today. Uh, Kai is coordinator of the Family and Domestic Violence Project at ACON, so I'll hand over. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Dino, and thank you for the acknowledgement of the country and for introducing me. Um, I hate public speaking, so I might have forgotten my name or something really embarrassing, so I appreciate that. Um, just want everyone to know that this fancy-looking microphone is actually because we're being recorded. We're going to turn this into a podcast. Um, I just think that's really important to say. Just If anybody wants to share anything like that, just know that it will be recorded. Um, of course, you can come to us later. We'll give you the contact details at the end if there's anything that you want left out of there. Um, again, I'd like to thank you all for talking about a really important issue tonight. I personally believe that this is the, one of the biggest issues affecting the LGBTIQ community today, as well as um, mainstream, for want of a better word, society as well, non-LGBTIQ people who are undoubtedly affected by domestic violence, um, domestic family violence as well. In saying that, some things may be brought up tonight that may upset some people here, you may feel triggered. You may have memories, you may feel a lot of emotions, particularly if you saw the play before, you're gonna see the play after. You may be concerned about somebody that you know or love or care for. Um, And for that reason, we've actually invited along two of ACON's counsellors, Sarah and Mistos today. So they're down the front here and I've actually, they've very kindly given up their Saturday afternoon to hang back after today's discussion. I've asked them to hang around here very inconspicuously. If you'd like to have a chat to them about anything, they're here for you. if it's about yourself or somebody else, it doesn't even have to be anybody in the LGBTQ community. There is some information brochures at the bar. I'll be hanging around the bar for many reasons, I'm sure. But one of them being I'll explain those information, I can give them to you, you can call today, you can call Monday, um, take them home with you, give them to a friend. They are there for you tonight. That's my cousin.
2: Um, <laughs> I'll
1: delete that from the podcast. Um, <laughs> On tonight's panel, um, and I am going to get this out because I don't want to forget the new <coughs> importance. Um, at the end there we have Moo. Moo is the CEO of a small team of domestic violence in New South Wales. That's the peak body for domestic and family violence specialist support services. She's definitely passionate about improving policy and practice responses to LGBTIQ people and families impacted by violence. Moo says that she looks forward to a day when all kids are taught about the intersections between violence, bullying, homophobia and healthy relationships. She believes that LGBTIQ community conversations, such as today's panel, are key to raising awareness about abuse in our relationships and finding ways to create healthier, queer, intimate partnerships. Thanks, Brad. Just going to keep talking about it. Yeah, thanks. Um, Brad Wasomu um, was working in ACON's Lesbian and Gay Anti-Violence project back in the 2000s when it first started. Um, and they first started doing work on domestic violence in the LGBTI communities. He worked on many of the early campaigns, however he's here today to talk about his personal experience and abusive relationship uh, with a man that lasted over five years, so he's very brave, so thanks a lot for coming along. Sergeant Kate Baker, she stands out, I don't need to point out who she is, joined the New South Wales Police Force in May 2000 and has worked at eastern suburbs Surrey Hills and Kings Cross local area commands. One of the primary reasons Kate joined the New South Wales Police was to become a gay lesbian liaison officer. As a proud member of the Sydney LGBTQ community, she believed it was important to improve and strengthen the relationship between the community and the New South Wales Police. And the best way to do that was to work with both communities. Cedric, to my left, is a solicitor at the Inner City Legal Centre's Safe Relationships Project. He's a human rights and anti discrimination lawyer and previously worked on a litigation lawyer, Law on Aboriginal Landmarks, and Nature Title. Sorry, I love that. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> It's, it's his handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also teaches at ACU and works at Sober. Good to know. Thanks, mm-hmm. um, And Alana to the left. This is my fault the programme oh. to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alana Valentine is actually the writer of the play Ladies Day, which was shown just before the matinee is before now, and the
3: show is after. Do you want to do me
1: a favour and say can you introduce yourself?
3: <laughs> <laughs> if you. If you buy the program you'll see, uh, Lady day is my first favourite, so that's the main thing to say. Uh, a lot of the work I do is in um, what's often called verbatim theatre, so it's uh, it's interview based, that's another thing you might be interested to know about my ongoing work.
1: And I will just plug your other show, that just started oh, yes. last night in the Campbelltown Arts Centre. <clears throat> Are you co-wrote and co-directed it, and it's for One Million Beats. Yeah,
3: with an Aboriginal poet called Romaine Morton, some of you may know, and so if I have to leave early, it's because I've got to dash out to Campbelltown to mm-hmm. another show, which we're not talking about, because ladies says we so on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but you can probably fit both in properly. Yeah, that's right. So thank you very much
1: to our panel. Um, because you have to go, Alana, I might just start with you. Yeah. Um, I do have some questions prepared. Panel, feel free to jump in any time that you like, um, and then I'll say plenty of time for the audience to jump in as well with any questions. Um, first of all,
3: what I want to know is what compelled you to write Ladies Day? Can I start with a piece of audience participation? How many people have actually seen the play? Great, so I'm not going to ask how many are planning to see it, because I'm assuming that all the rest of you are. Uh, so that's interesting that most people haven't seen it. Um the play. What made me write the play was I went to Broome and I spoke to quite a lot of members of the, particularly the gay community over there. Obviously, the wider GLBTI community, but mostly gay men. And uh, I have spent quite a bit of time in the territory, in uh, uh, not just Broome, but in Darwin. I had a play in Alice Springs and a play in Catherine, And uh, through my career. I have noticed that the way people deal with what happens to them depends on who they are. So it was when I was writing a play called Parramatta Girls, which is about women who are incarcerated in a... a Parramatta Girls um, sort of... was a, a place for what are called uncontrollable women. It was shut down in 1974. But it was for um, women who... Young women who'd broken the law in some way, including being in a, 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 an alcoholic uh, parent... Experience where the child was charged and put into these these homes. So um, I met a lot of girls there, and one woman had said to me that she had been bullied by the other girls, and it was so bad that she uh, left Australia and never came back. And it was really interesting um, talking to other women who had had some sort of other violent abuse at the at the home. And um, they said, oh, but compared to other people, Alana, it's nothing. You don't want to speak to me. And I started to understand that an aspect of human nature is that we diminish our stories according to who we are as people. So it's not about what has happened to you, but about who you are and how you think about it. So really, the answer to your question, Kai, is I wanted to write the play because I wanted to look at the ways in which some of, some of us think that, what is banal or insignificant um, for us may actually be uh, very serious and worthy of, of thinking about and talking about. So the play is, is about that. It's about the way we deal with different, um, different aspects of, of violence and abuse but, but diminish it uh, according to what we think is dramatic or interesting. Um, so, yeah, so that's the reason I wrote the play. So, I believe that the information that you got for
1: writing the script actually came from interviewing part of the LGBTQ community in Broome. Yeah. Is domestic violence something that, or violence in general, something that the community there is talking about, or is this something that you found really hidden and buried? Uh,
3: no. Um, I mean, obviously, I, especially in a small town like Broome, I'm kind of not really prepared to um, disclose where the main stories about domestic violence came from because what starts to happen is people in regional towns then play a guessing game, you know, whose story is this, who might have told her this. I mean, my contract with the audience um, in Ladies Day is that all of the stories are actually based on real things that people have told me, um, but I've spent my, you know, all my adult life in the, the community and so you know over those years I have heard those stories I did also particularly hear a fair few stories in the territory when I was there but like I say I just I don't I don't really want to say exactly where sincerely uh, uh, these stories have been told to me I'm not making them up. Um, I just want to open
1: something
3: to the panel so we
1: are talking about domestic family violence in LGBTI communities is this something completely new, do you guys think? Like that it's okay. it's new that's occurring or new that's been new that it's, new that it's being, new new. That's being talked about. Oh, it's definitely
4: it's it's definitely new it's new. it's coming up more. People are becoming um, more likely to report. Not enough, <laughs> but it's it's certainly coming to the fore more than it used to. No one to <laughs> say anything.
5: Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it's a good time for Brad to talk about where some of this work came from, because he was there right at the beginning. Yeah, there was a number of... um, uh, So, I'll go back before when I I started. The women's movement has talked about it since the 70s, probably. Um, uh, But I suppose it never kind of picked up the steam to get out into kind of the small communities or groups that we're talking about. Um, In 1994, there was a big conference um, started by the this City Legal Centre, possibly. but I know, somebody like that, they did a big conference and they kind of hoped that that would get it going onto the agenda, but it didn't, didn't quite get up there. And then in about 2002, mm-hmm. 2002, yeah, mm-hmm. about 2002 um, I was working at the Lesbian Gay, and Gay Project at ACON, and i had the job for about three weeks or something. Um, and we got a call from Darlinghurst Community Health Centre saying we'd like, we want a meeting on same sex domestic violence it was called then. Um, uh, can can ACON send something along and we went along and there was about sixty organisations represented. And they and it had all come together because the Darlinghurst Community Health Centre had had I might not exactly have the right number, but maybe about twenty men who'd come through, all experiencing domestic violence. And they didn't know what to do. They had no concept of what to do. Um, and so it all kind of started coming together then. Um, and you know, we had absolutely no resources. There's nobody whose job had this in their title, and the whole the, the interagency—it was called the same-sex domestic violence interagency then It's, the it's now along the LGBTI
2: Family violence yeah. interagency new South Wales.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so they basically got together, and we just started trying to do stuff. And like, literally, it included photocopying articles and sticking into a manual and posting it to people who <coughs> um, work in services. And we were so happy that the printer had actually printed it wrong. So they printed it single-sided with us for double-sided. So we got them to reprint it for us. <coughs> so we had d- twice the number of copies. <laughs> um, and that was the very first thing we did as kind of wrong. Right. Um,
1: maybe you can give a little bit of background at the moment. How prevalent is domestic violence or domestic violence and LGBTQ relationships? Look, the,
2: um, there's not a huge amount of... Uh, really solid research that's been done in Australia, certainly the piece that's kind of quoted more than anything else's private lives which was done in 2006 that was a study of 5,500 LGBTI Australians and they asked um, it was really a health survey Um, and they asked a number of questions um, about experiences of violence and specifically a couple of questions about domestic violence or intimate partner violence Um, and they found roughly I think it was about 28, 29% of gay men Uh, 37% of um, lesbians identified that they've been in an abusive relationship. Um, For trans and intersex people, significantly higher. But The numbers of trans and intersex people who actually participated in that study were fairly small. Um, But if you look at international evidence, it's fairly similar, so we're thinking probably one in three-ish, possibly more. Um, And that's not talking about experiences of family violence or um, anything outside the intimate partner context. Certainly uh, we would like to see some more research done um, around um, whether LGBTIQ people are experiencing that one in three in, in LGBTIQ relationships or whether it's in a, in a heterosexual, cisgender relationship context. But um, I don't know. I think we get a bit hung up on numbers. Um, particularly, you know, I work, in, um, I work in the broader kind of mainstream field of domestic and family violence, and we have these complicated, convoluted arguments about, you know, how many, what percentage of of, um, of victims are are female and male, and and I think we sort of lose the context and the point, which is that we need to have services for everybody. Um, Certainly some of the research that the interagency has done um, in the last couple of years has really looked at where people seek help, um, and that's about, you know, providing really good mainstream responses, which can be really, really good, and that can be, you know, police, it can be mainstream domestic violence services, it can be, you know, going to your GP and having conversation with your doctor, all of those sorts of places, but also we know that LGBTIQ people need specialist support as well because there are extra things that mainstream services don't necessarily understand. So it's it's really about having a range of different places, like really soft and hard entry points.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you, you really, you touched on there about access to services and I suppose I guess maybe what I read from that is that the services for the for our communities perhaps not there when I mean there's not enough services for intersexual cisgender women as well but it's even less for our services. So to, just generally do you think there are actually differences between or differences or similarities between LGBTIQ people LGBT experiencing domestic violence as opposed to non-LGBTIQ people experiencing domestic violence? Mm. Uh, are there
6: special needs that actually yeah, I think, I think as an LGBTIQ community, we do need specialist support services. But the nature of domestic violence is probably the same across the board. Um, in terms of the Safe Relationships Project, one of the recurring themes is men feel a terrible sense of shame about being assisted through the issues around violence in their relationships. Um, as do women often, but there are women's domestic violence court advocacy services in most courts Um, and we deliver training to them as well, so they provide support to uh, lesbian clients and transgender clients, which is good, Um, we've made some improvements there, Um, but I think the specialist support services such as ACON are invaluable for our community in terms of being able to discuss Intimate, um, intimate issues around those relationships, if that makes sense. So yeah, we are extremely necessary, I think. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I need a job on my day. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, but issues around violence are the same, I think, generally throughout the community. But the particular dynamics around gay, and lesbian, transgender, and intersex relationships means that we need counsellors like Sarah and Anastas to be able to disclose those issues candidly and without shame. Um, A lot of people are a bit confronted by my (coughs) approach to say we have a specialist support service for the community and usually the first response from men is I don't need anything from you right now and I don't need to talk about this and almost all of those men will contact me subsequently. So it is critical. And the cultural shift in police is turning
4: this in. Yeah, it's making a, I think it's making a huge difference to us as well. Um, you know, the education that we um, roll out amongst our offices um, statewide has been, has improved significantly 15 years that I've been in the course. Um The recognition of the differences that exist within geo relationships when it comes to how domestic violence manifests itself, I think it's really important that we uh, learn Continue to learn to address those differences and to identify them. To actually be able to speak to people and ask the right questions in order to gently enable them and allow them to disclose what they need to disclose. So we can, you know, Um, like anything, I think. uh, I think in any industry, if you're uncomfortable with what a situation, you're not comfortable asking the right questions to get the information you need. And the whole idea of educating officers and continuing to educate them is to make them more comfortable, asking the questions, more comfortable with different lifestyles for one better word, um, so that they don't feel uncomfortable about asking the questions in the first place. You know, so not the same topic we talk when we talk about dealing with um, trans people in custody. Uh, a lot of mistakes were made in the past by the police when people come into custody It is a difficult and uncomfortable thing to have to investigate. It makes people feel bad. And for us to be able to help people as effectively as we can, we need to consistently look at how we're approaching it and ask about, learn to ask the right questions and be guided by external agencies and working with the inter-agencies and stuff like that and the ICLC and ACON in order to make our response better. I think that that's how we Continue to improve our
1: service. Because I just I want everyone to know that on the LGBTIQ inter- domestic violence interagency, there is Domestic Violence in New South Wales, Cedric from New City, the Legal Centre, ACOM, the police are all there. We do work closely with police to build their strong mm-hmm. relationships. But there was a report that was brought out at the end of last year, um, and in that report, it said that about, only about 14% of LGBTIQ people actually reported the domestic violence mm-hmm. to the police. I wish I had the statistics here. It's in comparison to roughly about 60% of Yeah, I mean, men. I think,
2: again, it's one of those things to get a bit hung up on statistics. Um, it depends on who you talk to. Like, yeah. if you talk to someone like 1-800-RESPECT or line, and you ask them, you know, what percentage of your clients were actually reporting to police. they they will probably say somewhere between you know 20 and 50 percent and I think that stuff has shifted really significantly over the last 10 years particularly because New South Wales police and other um, police jurisdictions have really shifted like 10 years ago a heterosexual woman would you know have a real problem with calling the police and uh, I guess having a sense of safety and knowing that she was going to be relieved and that's not to say the police get it right all the time because they don't Um, but they've got a hell of a lot better like things have and that's been because uh, I think police have worked really hard on it. Other agencies have worked really hard to build strong relationships with police and say, you actually need to take this seriously. Mm. I mean, New South Wales Police, I think it takes, uh, I think it's about 60% of New South Wales Police resources domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so you would want that kind of you know focus and training, and I think we've brought in some incredible things in the last couple of years, like um, the Divi Evidence-in-Chief, whereby um, police now go to a job and they will film on a camera um, the the, um, the victim survivor's um, evidence and that will be shown in court and that will actually be shown to the um, to the offender before he goes to court, he usually um, but, and I don't know how it's going with the I Q space but I think we've had massive advances in terms of the way we're policing this stuff there will always be a percentage of people who don't want to report to police and, and the legal thing is not the
6: right thing. What
4: we you do you're not going to be able to get it.
6: That's huge for me because um, contested litigation or anything to do with courts is, um, I think I've been a litigation solicitor for 15 years and I still don't particularly like going to court, some people do, um, but the experience of being in court as a victim and as a victim of violence um, is a really unpleasant experience and to be subjected to cross-examination mm-hmm. about your experiences of violence mm-hmm. is a really awful experience. So mm-hmm. the fact that video evidence can be tendered as evidence in chief is extremely powerful. It normally stops It stops a lot of contested hearings okay. going ahead because the offender can actually see the impact yeah. of their actions.
4: I'm seeing a, an increase in early
6: guilty pleas. Yes, early guilty pleas. Um, but from the contested hearings I've seen with victims, they're tremendously unpleasant. Um, and that's why we piggyback people through the court process, so we can be there as their ally and protect them from some of the cultural elements of court which aren't particularly pleasant. Um, lawyers, lawyers are lawyers, um, but um, they're, they're, they're not especially sensitive people at times. So, I think going back to what Moo said, if we start at the beginning and we emphasise what a respectful and loving and caring relationship is for GLBTIQ people right from the start, right from primary schools, um, we won't be at the end dealing with violence, tying up police resources, and going to court. But you know, if people find themselves in that experience, having that experience, that's what we're here for to be. I guess the rainbow umbrella around
1: that process. Mm. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt this conversation, but I'm very aware that you might have to leave in five minutes. Just before you go, um, how has the play been received? Rapturous. <laughs> <laughs> so it is It is quite a touching issue, and I, I don't want to reveal the play because I know that you're all going to go and see it. Um, how much do I give away? There is obviously... Um, it does, it does approach the issue of domestic violence in an intimate relationship between two men. Um, the way that it's done, though, you don't really kind of find out... I am giving it away, I don't <laughs> know. <think. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the part about domestic violence, do you hear people in the audience talking about it? Have you heard feedback on that part of the play in you know, general or the rest of it?
3: Um, look, on the first night, the preview night, one of my best friends was in the audience and I was speaking to her and her husband afterwards and we were talking about there's a moment in the play where one of the female characters discloses something that's happened to her. And this this best friend of mine said to me, Oh yeah, but that I mean that's it's pretty banal really, isn't it? I mean that sort of happened at that time. You know, that was just something that happened. And me and her husband looked at her and went, did it? And she said, oh, yeah, I mean, that happened to me. I, I've never told anyone about it before. And it was just this, I mean, I've got to say, it was, it was incredibly moving for me because I realised, I, you know, what I've known for a long time, which is that you don't need to go to Broome to find these stories. Sometimes they're actually, it's your best friend who's never told you this. And it's because she doesn't think that it's significant enough to have ever mentioned to anyone. And, um, you know, so the the response to you is that people, what people are doing with the play, it's not about specifically domestic violence, but it's about naming to yourself what that thing is. Because, you know, plays should be about what we can't say in five minutes. They should need 90 minutes to, to explore. And the main thing that the play, I think, has been responded to is that people come out going, well, when have I done that in my life? When have I done that? I mean, I think coming out as as a homosexual person is part of the process is going, oh, that's what it is. That's why I'm attracted to that girl and want to, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's that, that's, oh, I must be a lesbian. Oh, I've heard this word. I know this is what this is, but that's what I am. I mean, it's the same thing with, with, with domestic violence or, or any kind of, to go, oh, oh, I was raped. That's what that was. Um, and people kind of don't name it to themselves, and I think that that's what is going to start the next step where people disclose. Mm-hmm. Like it takes a while for people to go, that's what happened to me. Kai came into the rehearsals um, that we had and said this amazing thing about you know that people fight so hard to get into a gay, a lesbian relationship or any any of the rest of our communities. Um, relationships and, and then once they're in it, if this if domestic violence starts to happen it's like, oh my god, this is the love of my life that I've you know fought so hard to, to, to have and it can't possibly be domestic violence. You know, so I think also people hide it, they don't disclose it. You know, you, you said that you've been talking with police about um, going back through reports that to see whether that is actually domestic violence. Like people reported it as something else, you know, like the allergic to the cat or something. You know, yeah. <laughs> no, it's incredible what people do. I'm sure you can talk about it. Yeah. But it's just,
4: and that's true, it's, I think recognising acknowledging it calling it what it really is. Yeah. Right? And it's yeah, true because it's that's awesome. it. Because we just, you know, this whole thing of people and I talk to people regularly with a terrible regularity you know, where they're like, that's not, that, no, I mean, that's not, that's not domestic violence and you just, and trying to explain to people that you're, you're, nobody's ice is any colder than anyone else's. Yeah. What you're experiencing is domestic violence. I can help you with that need really difficult thing
6: to get through to people because I don't, so that's happening to me. Yeah, and our clients will um, refer friends and family mm. to the Safe Relationships project once they've been through that experience because they can identify yes. violence in their, in their own yeah. sort of king groups. So, um, and not reporting, well, you know, as a gay man and a black fella, I, I've dealt with police for <laughs> years. <laughs> Um, and it has changed culturally, based, but still a police station is designed to be intimidating. Like a
4: courthouse. Like a courthouse. No, it's not, so, and they're not yeah. woman-friendly No, ourselves.
6: exactly. So being escorted through <coughs> by someone like Katie is incredibly important, I like, think, yeah, for victims. Thank
1: you very much, Lana. Thank I must you for go.
3: that. Um, about gay issues on the stage. You think know, because the Mardi Gras is full of plays, but they're all you know, they're all Americans and English. So they come to us, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think that's a perfect time to
1: bring Brad back into the conversation. What Alana was talking about then was, and everybody else, about how hard it is to identify it and to talk about it as well. If you feel comfortable,
5: do you mind talking about what you went through yeah. during that relationship? I'll start at the end. Actually, <laughs> I identified that I'd experienced domestic violence by doing a Dolly quiz. I work, <laughs> I <wonder>. I work <laughs> in a And I found out I was getting. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Said, Has your partner ever done these 10 things? And I read it and thought, fuck He did. And it was actually after the relationship had finished. So it wasn't even when the relationship was happening that I realised. It was actually afterwards. Um, and there were things like, does he control your finances? You're scared to talk about money? Does he isolate you from your friends? Fight with your families? All those, all the classic things. Um, and it seriously was a revelation. So. Um, uh, so, it, so that, that was kind of the end. That's when I realised, and it actually hadn't finished by that stage because he, he he continued on with kind of, ongoing going stalking afterwards. So for years afterwards, he, yeah, when I first started working at Acom, he bought a shop underneath my office <laughs> yeah, to, <laughs> to, to, to set up. So I didn't even realise that until the very end what that was actually about. Um, so I met him on Christmas Eve, like way back, nine. Um, And I was quite young, I was 16, and he was older, he was 31 or something at the time. And for the first months, it was just amazing, like it was the best thing ever. Um, And, you know, uh, it was mentioned before, it takes a long time to get into a relationship, although 16 doesn't sound very long, but I've been wanting it for a very long time. Um, And uh, I got into that, and it felt really good for the first six months or nine months, and then he started getting jealous, and if I, got home from school, if I got home from school late, he'd yell at me. And if I spoke on the phone for too long, he would yell at me. And, da, da, da. and it got to the point where I was actually a bit uncomfortable with the relationship within about a year, were five. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't actually want to admit that to anybody, particularly my parents, because I just came out to my parents, they said, I love this guy, which was the reason why I came out to me. And then to say it was not a good relationship. It was, I didn't want to have to admit that. Now, anyway, we moved in together at about the year point, and from about halfway through that year, I really wanted to get out. But it was an effect. He was effective as an abuser. He was effective. He wasn't physically violent at that, that stage, but it was psychological violence. Like every, he called me fat all the time, and I still carry that. If I hadn't done my homework or the cleaning by the time we got home, he would have like serious meltdowns and smash things and all sort of stuff. At my mum's wedding he was a he was a chef, he catered the wedding and he fought with all my like stand up fight with all my cousins, so I stopped seeing them. And I got to the end of the relationship but I literally had two friends left in the world who I saw not that frequently. One of them's actually here today. Um, and uh, like I said, I read the dolly and I thought, Oh my god, that's kind of what's happened and worked back from that. So, um, so yeah, was it was, it was, it seriously, it was kind of what happened. The, the, the final thing, um, the, our very first date was Midnight Mass. It was religious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was Midnight Mass. Um, and uh, and the very last incident was also Midnight Mass five years later. Um, we were, he engineered it, so we were walking past the church on Oxford Street at Midnight to go to Midnight Mass. I said I didn't want to go to church, because, you know, church, church. Um, and he had a complete meltdown and he hit me hit that night so, um, and it was that, that minute that I realised I had to go but it took four months for me to, mm-hmm. to build up the courage to actually be um, She
1: you said that it wasn't violent, physically violent at first do you think that we're distracted by the black eyes and the bruises and perhaps we, that masks all of the other types of violence?
5: Ben i am up
1: to know that it's not just physical, but does everybody else know I think we have been. I we
4: have been. Um, and I think that it's actually just starting to come to the fore now that the the insidious nature of the psychological violence of financial control, of isolation from friends and family, and how, how that actually makes up the bulk of what constitutes domestic violence. Because we, we haven't seen it all called it what was. The people that's that. That's that. It's
2: not healing. she's not healing. And and a lot of people will say, um, actually, the the physical bruises and the you know, um, even I remember speaking to a gay man who was stabbed in the leg by his um, partner when he was trying to leave, and he said that stuff was nothing in comparison with the psychological stuff. (laughs) The psychological stuff that you know you heal from, you know, um, most physical injuries, but it's the um stuff where you are doubting yourself and you're doubting your ability yeah. to make decisions or have I'm you know normal rational shots. conversations yeah. um and your money's being controlled um i remember speaking to a guy who was living out in um really really regional australia and the um i was doing your job at the time Kai, and they the hospital rang me randomly and they said look this guy is um he's living with his carer um, the guy collects all his money every fortnight he's um he's allowed to roll three cigarettes in the morning, and that's his ration for the day. So it's, it's weird. The thi- you know, the control things can be s- the simplest little things, but it's about that power of control, and that's where the sim- similarity is. Yeah. Um, you know, all all domestic violence relationships are about the use of power of control, and it doesn't matter what your sexuality or gender is. Yeah.
5: There's, there's, there's no abusive relationship that doesn't have emotional control. There's significant numbers that don't have physical yep. violence. Yeah. But left long enough, I reckon... Most of them in that direction. Not all, but... No, I would would
4: have to agree with you there. I think because then that's... that The abusive partner then desensitises so much to what they're doing and dehumanises the person they're with so much that eventually physical violence is a natural progression. Because they have no respect for that person and then they're like,
6: nothing to do. And a healthy relationship is... um based on your own experiences, but as GLBTI people, we grow up with little isolated pods without references to adult relationships that are functional and loving and gentle, and so we don't have that reference point necessarily, and a lot of our clients uh, draw the line at different points in terms of control and violence and conflict, and I think healthy relationships have an element of conflict, but that overbearing psychological control and abuse of power is accepted by a lot of victims for a long time, like you are saying, Rick. Mm-hmm. and once you've established you gay and you've got that relationship, you don't want to diminish it or disparage it, particularly the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, I think,
2: one of the reasons why we find it really difficult to talk about it in our communities, because, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's an perception. awful lot of uh, excusing or yeah. um, bad standard kind of things where you look at you look at a friend's relationship and you go, it's kind of dodgy, you know, like not necessarily physical violence, but you look at something going on and you're like, yeah. you know, I mean we're not good at that stuff. Australians are not good at like speak intervening or yeah. speaking out or saying yeah. uh, this makes me feel really uncomfortable, are you okay? And yeah. I think if we can get better at that stuff, yeah. um, we will actually grow a culture of unacceptability around those sorts of things that go on all the time.
4: Mm. I think as well uh, you know, for so long, the mainstream society, we, we've had, we've, we've wanted to show our relationships in the best lights we possibly could because they already don't think that our relationships are valid enough. And so, if we also show that these domestic violence, bad things happen, we're showing them that our relationships aren't perfect. is another thing that they can diminish our relationships for. And uh, I think that that's part yeah. of the you know, significant reason why it's taken us so long to. It was that was one of
5: the biggest issues when we started the first campaigns as well. Yeah. So the the first statewide campaign on domestic violence was "There's No Crime in Domestic Violence," yeah. and the tagline of that is "Most Gay and Relationships are Based on Love yeah. and Respect." And we worked really hard to make sure that, that was the top line okay. because otherwise yeah. <laughs> it undermines what we've been fighting for. Yeah, and that was ten years ago. Did you say that? Yes. that was the first campaign? Yeah, first yeah, 10 years ago. and
0: yeah. a little bit more. No, we're a bit <laughs> <old>. <laughs> <laughs> not me. I'm not. of going backwards And I
1: think yeah. that's quite poignant now to talk about, considering with the safe schools, everything that's going on, and the fact that again we're under attack. Again, I guess people are not wanting to come out, either about their gender sexuality or especially about the abuses happening to me, So yeah, this is a protective community element. Um. So you, you see people coming to you. First of all, going back a couple of steps, if the physical violence isn't there or isn't there yet, as far as the law's concerned, do that
6: have a case? Is there, like, yeah, yeah. Know, No, but no, so. absolutely. An assault is the apprehension of that imminent sort of attack that's coming. It's yeah. not the actual, the battery itself or the being hit. It's being in that state of fear. And the test for a police officer now, because you can report directly to police, you don't need to make an application in court. The test for every police officer is, are you fearful for your safety or for your life? And that focuses people on the circumstances they're in because that's quite a high threshold to meet ordinarily. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, the psychological control, the monitoring uh, your partner's phone and emails, controlling finances, controlling the social group that they see, Family and all of those elements are forms of domestic violence, mm-hmm. and magistrates are very aware of that in their practice notes and directions. That violence takes uh, the psychological form more often than not, and the assault is the end result. <coughs> and I really have to say, because of the video footage that police now tender in court, what the police see every day. There are twenty-six local courts running domestic violence matters every week. And the lists are overflowing, but what you see as DVLOs, domestic violence liaison officers, is incredibly confronting because you're there at the moment off the track, witnessing those really awful physical assaults. So um, it's a really tough gig, Kate. and, um, the um, and I think it's
4: really not. the that the domestic violence evidence in chief program that we now run with the video and victims, and, and not just the victims, but damage to them. To the premises, but um, oh, yeah. how the, you know the place has been turned over. Um, a person's demeanour at the time that they are reporting this incident has been invaluable to us, yes. because not only does it take pressure off the victims, because you know um, we take pressure off the victims by being legislated to, we, we have to take action in these matters, and they are not per, the person um, responsible for taking action against the offender or the alleged offender. So we take the pressure off there. It allows that victim to go, I don't have any choice in this, the police are taking this action. But also, they have made their report when they're at their most vulnerable. It's being videotaped. That can be tended in court. And so there's um, the, the opportunity for the courts to see what it's like at the time, not how someone is six months later or six, six weeks later. Seven, later. Yeah. But also, for the alleged offender. Mm, to have an... To have a genuine, in, a bit of insight or a vision of what their behaviour is doing to somebody in the heat of the moment, when this person is doing whatever it is that constitutes a domestic violence offence, they're not thinking. They're, not, they're, they're they're enraged or whatever that's going on. They might be affected by alcohol or drugs. They, they might just it might just be their anger taking them over. To be able to sit back and look at these videos and see the effect that they're having on um, on their victims. I think can only be a good thing, quite yeah, frankly, is. because I think that that will have, we'll start to see some long-term effects of yes. that, and I, and they are also given an audio copy of that DVEC interview before they leave custody, so, they don't get the, the actual video, but an audio, so, that, it's right there in their hands, yeah. and I, I and it leads we're not, to obviously really. it's a very fresh yeah. program, and we haven't done a lot of um, investigation into what we're getting at the moment, because we
6: that that may help to have an effect on offending behaviour. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. you
4: know, I think
6: it's... I, th- I
2: think it's really interesting, Kate, and this is something I've thought about a lot over the last, kind of, 12 to 18 months. You know, we've had such a focus on domestic violence yeah. in the media. We've had Rosie Batty, bless her. Yeah. I'm glad that she's having some downtime now because it gives all of us a bit of a downtime, too. <laughs> but we've got this incredible focus and a whole new language around things like, you know, sexual assault domestic violence and abusive relationships. But I think it's also really important to recognise that sitting in this audience today, we probably have survivors of domestic violence and potentially perpetrators of domestic violence yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, like, we live in a society where we're not taught about healthy relationships. Like, it's badly taught in schools. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a difficult yeah. thing that, you know, families not don't necessarily know. mirror that stuff, that kind of behaviour. Um, like, we've probably all been in relationships where we've kind of looked back on it afterwards and gone, oh. you know... Was I? Was I? Did I over the line there? It's and like, I think it's too easy to say, you know, we have this, this group of people who are victims and they're over here and that's, you know, one in three and, and those sort of stats. And then, you know, there's these kind of evil people over here who are perpetrators of violence and yes, some of them are. Some of them are psychopathic, you know, crazy, crazy people that should be locked up. But very few are. Actually, the, the big bulk of people who are perpetrators. We mm-hmm. don't have the right tools at the right places to go and get help and support, and the right mm-hmm. um, understanding of their behaviour. And I think this is where some of this stuff will kick mm-hmm. in because we need to have more sophisticated conversations about this stuff, mm-hmm. rather than just saying, you know, all you her and violence that are that evil thing. over there. Yeah. Um, and look, isn't she an evil woman because she, you know, she bashed up her girlfriend? It's actually, well, where, how are we going to start having a conversation about what where that comes from <coughs> and, and trauma you, and you know. Um, And I think we're starting to have some of those conversations in Aboriginal communities because I think communities are, this is where this stuff has to happen, you know. I mean, police is one part of the response, services are another part of the response, schools and education are another part, but unless we start talking about this stuff as a community and go, actually we've got to check our own behaviour and our attitudes, think about how we are and how we conduct ourselves in relationships, what the difference is between healthy conflict and abuse and parent control
4: like we're still going to be having these same kind of conversations in yeah. 20 years time. That's why so I think it's good night. to get these pictures, yeah. you know, to have these pictures, to have these records
6: of what's happened, because I think that that can create a conversation around assisting the behaviour. Yeah, the process is artificial. <coughs> By the time it hits the court, the witness is usually recovered from that incident, and you can't recreate the circumstances of that event. No, but the video know. evidence is so compelling, it does lead to early guilty pleas. Mm. But it also so in Aboriginal communities we've got uncles and aunts who are owning the violence in community and setting up their own programs and safe houses for men as well. So men can still be part of the community and interact with family and kin but be rehabilitated about their anger. If I mean I think if we had a dollar for every time we heard she's a lovely woman or he's a lovely bloke until he has a drink yep. or until he takes the ice or whatever it <laughs> <he> is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Um it's just yeah it's owning those sorts yeah. of behaviours as a community and it does focus you on your own this sort of anger and intolerance to certain things it's a really um, yeah you have to own it I guess as you're saying <laughs> um, just before I pass over to the audience um, my mom told me that we're running
1: out of time Right? <laughs> Brad? From your experience and the experience that you've had in the past, what might have actually helped you at the time to either recognise it earlier or to end the cycle of violence? And I, and I ask this for anybody here today that may be experiencing it themselves, as Moose said, as a perpetrator or a victim, or for anybody who might be concerned for their, their family, friends, loved ones
5: as well. Um, <laughs> I think the reason I left when I did, like I said, he hit me on that day and once in the four months between I left. So it was kind of escalated. But I actually think the reason I left is because I'd been, that was my second year at uni, the year I left. Um, and the first year at uni, he'd convinced me that I was doing teaching, that if I went to the gay group, then I would never get a job as a teacher, thinking this for that, because the ophthalmia in the education system. Um, so I never went. But in the second year, I did, I went along a couple of times, and what I saw were people who had good relationships in that group. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, the fundamental thing. And it took me a long time to realise that, but that was actually the trigger. That, okay. This is not right. What's happening is not right. So I think it, so. I think seeing good relationships yes. is really important. But I also think it's uh, it's understanding the psychological uh, weapons the the, the abuser uses and being able to identify those. Because if I if I'd known that stuff earlier, like yeah. basically what that they, they take somebody and they break them down. Then they break them down so they don't have the ability to the... If you can identify that stuff early on, then you don't get broken down and you can go. Yeah.
1: Um, I'd like to pass it out to anybody who has a question for anyone in the panel or for the whole panel.
7: I'm just I have a question for ACON from um, a on service perspective. Um, I can see all the work that's being done to. Help members of the community not feel ashamed about what people outside of our community think if they see um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence in a gay relationship, and doesn't automatically mean all gay relationships are bad. Um, What's done education-wise to make people feel safe within the community about how people can feel about, because we're such a small, tight-knit community that when you do report or you go to think you're going to report, this kind of thing. There's a lot of pressure on people from outside elements inside the community saying you will ruin that person's life. You know how can you think that? I think that person is really lovely. I don't believe this is happening, and I don't see like a lot of education around that for people. Like, what's the focus on that? I mean, well, you, you guys had those
4: fantastic classes last year. Like, that, that, um, the program around the you know if you see something, say something. Yeah. Domestic
2: violence. Sort of thing. I like, mean, I think um, I think stuff is starting to be done mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, there's an amazing woman called um, Shannon Springs who's up at uh, Griffith University in Queensland and she's basically the expert in this country on uh, bystander interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started to run uh, groups, like training groups, specifically with LGBTIQ communities. She's done some of this more and I think she's going like to be doing some down here. And it's really about equipping the community to have an understanding about where violence comes from mm-hmm. and how it, uh, I mean... You know, like we have, we have difficulties talking about this stuff because we go, oh yeah, domestic violence is a man and a woman, and yeah. a nice, neat heterosexual cisgender context, and that's you know that's not mm. our experience. And okay, yeah, we've got you know beautiful national research saying that domestic violence comes from gender inequality, and that's great, and that's really important. But how do how do things like homophobia and transphobia and mm. discrimination and bullying and the things that happen uh, to our communities from the outside and inside fit into that? And I mean. Um, and you talk to Shannon, and she just explains that it fits really nicely into that package of um, of, of messy attitudes. Um, and, it, and so I think the more that we can start having those conversations in our communities mm-hmm. and recognise that our communities are not these nice, homogenous, you know, neat-packaged things where all queers think the same mm-hmm. um, or they all come from the same political perspective or, um, you know, we're all able to have this sort of... Uh, you know, nice community conversation about how I mean, I've seen co- communities policing this stuff inside the community, yeah. and I think it's really dangerous. Yeah. You know, people putting out things on Facebook or saying, yeah. you know, he's a rapist, or, you know, and that stuff is really, really
7: dangerous. But there are ways of pulling <coughs> the mate aside and saying, <laughs> actually, that he's not okay. Let's go and talk to And is there stuff being done to helping people, like, support, like a support to report kind of thing, whereby you're not being judged? because we're in an abusive relationship. Because like, quite, you know, quite often, what, well, well, I think what you said before is really important that no one's really evil and no one's really good. There are these really good, nice people who everybody likes who are perpetrators and victims of violence. And it's hard for people in the community to not judge when someone reports them. I think,
1: Can I just jump in? Because I think your question also targeted ACON to begin with. We've got three... Panelists here who have all worked for ACON. Yeah. To be really candid, I think the reason why a lot of us may be in those roles for shorter periods of time is because the funding hasn't actually been there to yeah. have sustainable yeah. um, ongoing campaigns and ongoing yeah, education and awareness. Mm-hmm. Again, Rosie Batty, I love her pieces, because she probably got me funding somewhere along the line so that we could actually continue this work. This is the start since I've been in there, which is only since November. This is one of the first ways to actually start those discussions. Yeah. And there will be more. And I think these discussions, people like yourself, I think, and I'm going to be really judgmental here, I think half of the people here might actually be part of the LGBTQ community. To have them sitting here and actually perhaps say, like questions like yourself, this is the stuff that we want, this is the stuff that yeah. we're seeing, this is how it happens. And to be really honest, there probably has been, there, there is a lot of work that needs doing here. And I don't believe we are an LGBTQ community. I'm really careful to say communities because I have absolutely nothing in common with a sister girl coming from the Northern Territory. I have absolutely nothing in common with a 50-year-old white middle-class gay man mm. with HIV and and I think we need to be careful to, to say, yes, we have a really nice flag but maybe we will fit under them in really different ways. It is a massive task and I'm probably going to... Contact later and say, "What well, can you help me with something? The work has been here for yeah. 10 years. I have yeah. the poster that Brad made on my desk, mm. and it is the work is there. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure because I'm one of few people in the country actually funded to do this work. Mm. and It does come down to I would spend seven days a week doing it, but I, I wouldn't do it for free, and I don't think you want know, the reward. But it comes down to getting. Resources, getting money, getting funding, getting attention, and having these kind of discussions. And I and think. how can
7: the community help you pursue that kind of funding and those kind of resources, and what needs to be done yeah. Well,
1: first of all, I will direct you all to some pamphlets at the bar,
4: <laughs> at the
1: um, and they do have those details and, and contact anyone and contact us. We're pretty easy to find. Um, but I also. But I, I also. I would also say, uh,
2: um, at a kind of policy there write mm. a letter to the new Minister for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault yeah. out because she knows this stuff mm, right. and she's been on all of our conferences and she knows this stuff exists in our communities and yet she gave one on twelve months funding. Mm, right. You know, like it's if we're really yeah. gonna take this stuff seriously and, and New South Wales government has been one of the better ones in that they've given chunks of funding for this over mm. the years. But um, you know if one in three of our relationships that stuff's going on or mm. sorry, if it's affecting one in three people in our community, and way ten percent of the population,
1: well we've got yeah, we, we should have some say in this. we should have some, um, some attention. And I would, I would say it's affecting everyone because every single person in this room knows somebody who's in a deviant relationship. Possible? I would put money on them, whether or not and, you know And it's
6: bystanders, bystanders are reporting violence a little bit yeah. more because of this work. But the thing about our communities, mm-hmm. and the same with Indigenous communities, is the last thing you want to do is criminalise a member mm-hmm. of the community. And expose exactly. them to police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, it isn't
7: really it's minutes. like a little close-knit society. Yeah, everybody yeah. knows it isn't anonymous. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, yeah. It's something yeah.
6: that happens in our small communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's why those discrete avenues of reporting or being piggybacked and referred to reporting. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, it's the it's the guilt and legacy of mm-hmm. um, involving institutions with extreme minorities' lives. Yeah, institutions that we
1: historically have a as yeah. <laughs> institutions, I mean, we do live in a homophobic, transphobic, mm-hmm. heterosexual society, and when we look at services such as the police, despite the great work they're doing, we still see those uniforms and say, well, the it's police, police has been really complex
7: out I um, I of fear of services. And do you see the consequences worse. for people, even though you know they've done something not great? Mm-hmm. you see the consequences of something that would be my fault as well? Yeah.
4: Yeah. I think I'm sorry, I'd like to just say... But ultimately, we would like to reach a point where we can intervene, we have services that intervene in offending behaviour before it becomes a criminal offence. So people are learning better behaviours, they're, they're seeing better relationships, they're identifying in themselves that their behaviour is not right and there are services for them to access so they don't end up the POI, the person of interest in, a, in an apprehended violence and they don't end up with a criminal That are tailored to. Now, I'm no expert on rural areas, but I also know, I know the challenges are different in rural areas than they are in um, you know, city areas. Um, the different services work in those areas and work with groups, but again, it is it's difficult in that all communities are different and all communities have different needs. Um, but there isn't any New South Wales police officer that hasn't been received and is not receiving ongoing training with regards to how to deal with domestic violence um, in all communities. We also um, from a GLBTIQ perspective, the gay and lesbian liaison officers or a sexuality and gender diversity team that we're now called it's changed. <laughs> sexuality and gender diversity, but it doesn't sound as nice as "glow." so <laughs> we stick to gay and lesbian liaison officers. Um, as part of the training that we roll out across the state, we go to Regional areas when we have the funding, and um, we speak to community groups as well as the police officers in those locations in order to skill them up. Part of what we do is get those liaison officers, is what we call capacity building. Not everyone can be a glow, not everyone can be a domestic violence liaison officer, or an Aboriginal community liaison officer, or a culturally and linguistically diverse liaison officer. Um, but what those officers do, and they are—it's voluntary positions. You do it in a in addition to your normal duties, um, is that we help to skill up our fellow officers. So where we identify people who are maybe not handling situations in the best way possible, we help them to be better police officers. And where we have the opportunity and the resources, we travel around the state. I say we, I stay in my pretty office in the mostly. Um, but people like Jackie Braw, um, our senior programs uh, manager from uh, headquarters, Um, you know, um, coordinates training across the state. In particular, we identify ongoing issues or problem areas and we target our training in those areas.
6: And the Safe Relationships Project is a statewide referral service. But we work with WDB-CAS, which is the Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service, and train them to take the same-sex transgender and intersex referrals. But what I always say to people is, the further you get away from a cosmopolitan metropolis, the less you can rely on the rule of law mm-hmm. and enforcing the law. It's just the way it goes. The further northwest you get, yeah. the yeah. worse it gets. So like city policing is very different to cultural policing. It's a completely different
1: job. Yeah. And that's the same as services too, I think. Yeah. yeah. City services are very different to rural services, if there are any. Yeah, true. Any other questions from the audience? Maybe yeah. you spoke
2: before about how we can find the claims and our neighbor and
7: changes and I guess if Heather
2: contexts where people are actually getting that one-on-one or fairly small um, support. I think um, I think this is, going back to what Kai said, I think that this is why some of the safe school stuff is so important because we can have our relationships and our gender and our sexuality or our intersex um normalized for, you know, kids when they're um, in school, and I think it needs to go, you know, way below years seven and eight or whatever the curriculum is around safe schools, I think it needs to be right from the very beginning, and if that is part of a conversation, not just about sexuality and gender and about difference, but also about things like healthy relationships um, in the intimate partner context, but in the family context, um, then we will get we will get that. We will get better at this stuff. We will get better at talking about things like homophobic bullying in schools. I mean, we know we know young queer kids. Two most dangerous places for them are school and a family. Um, if you want to read about some horrific experiences that young, um, particularly gay and well same sex attracted and um, and trans and gender diverse kids read the writing themselves in studies because that's a every six years it's a piece of research that's been done by people, Lynn Hillier. Um, down in Melbourne with a, a, you know, a big um, cohort of young people, and the violence is getting worse for them. Um, you know, as we get, as as kids get more comfortable talking about their gender and their sexuality, or you know, um, being genderqueer or using a different personal pronoun, and start doing that stuff in schools, it results in really horrific experiences of violence. You know, these kids are getting beaten, they're getting, um, you know, sexually assaulted, and they're having. And that's happening in school and then that's happening in the family as well. And part, you know, it might be parents, it might be siblings. So I think we have a real responsibility to uh, support wherever we can those conversations about what is a healthy relationship, where can you know um, young queer kids get help, where can we get help as adults. Um, you know, there are some great helplines that are now pretty LGBTIQ friendly. Um, so we're getting better at, at training up the mainstream services so that they can understand us. Um, and our differences and our similarities. Um, but yeah, it's it's not being done in a really coordinated way, anyway, yet, I would say. Probably Victoria's doing the best work. For yeah. um, sort of behaviour change.
4: Yeah. 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 I agree. You're doing some nice stuff in yeah. Yeah.
6: Mm-hmm. yeah, true. And being referred to, for perpetrators to be referred mm. to have their you know, behaviour <clears throat> changed is really critical mm. here in yeah, yeah.
2: Just just this week, um, Daniel Andrews, down Victoria, announced that they've given, I think it $140,000 for uh, a behaviour change programme. Now, the way that behaviour change works in New South Wales is it's all about men's behaviour change, and gay men and trans men are actually included in the policy stuff around that. So, mm-hmm. men's behaviour change groups, which are usually delivered in a, in a group context, um, somewhere between 10 weeks and up to 52 weeks, depending on how much funding they've got and who they're run by. There are very few of them. There are, um, I think, nine programs that are standard across the whole state. Um, only four of them government funded. Um, they are, are trialing down in Victoria um, an LGBTIQ behavior change group, and that's the first time that's ever been done, definitely in Australia, possibly anywhere in the world. And that's just because the government's chucked some money in. Um, that stuff's been work with, it's, that work's been done with gay men by decades for probably 10 or 12 years now, and they've just been running this small group once a year. Um, but they're going to expand it to LGBTIQ, which I think is so exciting. There is nowhere for people to go at the moment mm. in our communities here in New South Wales. But mm. hopefully that will be something we'll see next.
6: Yeah, I hope so. We've got referral points to good counsellors and psychologists and therapists, but yeah. none of those form behaviour change groups.
2: Ironically, I would say, <laughs> if uh, if you know somebody who you think is... You know, abusive in a relationship. I would tell them to ring the men's referral service, which is a twenty four seven service. They're super queer friendly, um, and they will work with anybody. Um, So they are the experts around um, behaviour change. But I would say they would work with you know women. They would work with trans men, trans women, anybody. Um, So if you've got somebody that you know and you're a bit worried about their behaviour or anything, they're ready to have a
1: conversation with someone. I'd say ring, ring them. Uh, On that note, I'll ask the rest of the panelists. If, for the audience here, if they know anybody experiencing DfE or somebody that
6: they're
1: concerned about, what would your one piece of advice be? just I'm moving to I say, i
2: not I'd go One piece of advice. To talk
5: to them about it. Talk to them that, about it. That's the most important thing. Uh, in all likelihood, they'll say it's not an issue, uh, but at least they know that somebody is thinking of them, so when they're prepared to talk, yeah. you know, whenever it is they know there's somebody start to. there start, yeah. a start, start a conversation start a conversation
6: yeah. Did you? absolutely start that conversation even if someone's defensive it. or resistant at first invariably it opens up a stream of consciousness yeah. and I would say call it what it is as well
1: yeah. and I would also say downstairs in the bar some brochures <laughs> take some and hand them to them <coughs> I will be down there handing out brochures our wonderful counsellors Sarah and Demistos, will be hanging around back here feel free to have a chat um or at least just ask them for our contact details or come and get a brochure referral and you can contact ACON anytime you want. Um, And there's also a list of other referral services because you may not want an LGBTIQ um, service. And also we can (coughs) refer you to non-LGBTIQ services as well. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for talking about a very serious issue. Um, I appreciate all of your input. Thank you panelists, it's been wonderful. I'm sure we could probably talk for hours on this, but we do, that's our job. Again, thank you for coming. I hope the rest of your Saturday night is maybe talking about something a little bit nicer. <laughs> but thank you for engaging in a really serious discussion because I think this is what's really important. Um, yeah, that's just one thing:
4: what do you guys do to de break
1: You know, like
6: you're we were just, constantly we at this kind of yeah. barrage
2: of domestic violence coming at you, coming at you all the time. What kind of support network is there for you? How do you,
6: Vicarious trauma comes up, <laughs> <laughs> comes, comes up a lot in that work. I'm not sure you
1: I I'm in mean this job because this is my break. I worked with clients up until this job recently, so I needed that client break. So I came to talk about it with these guys instead. <laughs> um, so this is my break. So i else. Yeah, like internal. Dep- we, we do.
2: Okay.
4: We have internal, um, yeah. you know, support services, <coughs> but um, I have the toxic relationship as well, and my close friends that I debrief with regularly, and, um, I, and I think that that's extraordinarily important, um, to be able to do that, because, yeah, there's a lot of darkness, and the things that you have to be confronted with, and it's, um, and then, you know, and also, it, it will invariably bring up things in your own past, in your own life, um, and family situations, and friends that you've dealt with in the past, for example, relationships you've been in, and it's, Having a strong personal network mm-hmm. is extraordinary. It's invaluable. You couldn't live without it. You couldn't be a healthy individual. you could, got a <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> So, yeah. I, I think also um, kind of knowing where to get help when you, when you need it. Like, 1-800-RESPECT is the national um, mm-hmm. counselling line for domestic family violence and sexual assault. But they will speak to anybody. They'll speak to, you know, a family member who's worried. They'll speak to somebody who's dealing with this stuff in their work every day and they're not quite sure how to do the next bit. They will... Talk, talk to and support anybody. And um, in my organisation, we have four these divisions so we go and do once every um, three months. We go, we have to go and speak to somebody, and we do uh, a trauma check, like a trauma checklist, um, and they measure how very strong because we're doing this stuff all day, every day. So um, I think it's just being aware of it and how it impacts on you, and maybe doing some training about it, and then going out and doing doing things that are completely disconnected. Yeah, like, you know, walking your dog.
4: Or, Anything. Read yeah. a book. Yeah. Eat ice cream. <laughs> Eat ice cream. Eat yeah. ice cream. Yeah. I'm going to go <laughs> into <for the> <laughs> across the road. Also probably sponsored by a sinner. Thank you, everybody. Thank <laughs> hey, you. Hey, darling, man. Hope to see you downstairs. Can I just also, I right could say, Kai, Thanks, grab you. the brochures. The brochures are great. If you've got a friend, though, who might be going through, might be currently going through um, this kind of thing, be careful about handing yeah. the brochures. Yeah. Be a precipitating yeah. factor if an abusive partner would have found something. Mm-hmm.
1: There is one small pamphlet down there that has a really uh, discreet cover. It's got some little puppy looking people. Um, and the wallet size. You? Oh no. no. There is another one, so it's about wallet size that I can also tuck in there as well and that's got a list of services. Um, and feel free for any of us anytime. Good luck. thank you,